Good morning, Remnant. How are we doing? Great. You ready to start a new series? Yes. Yeah? Okay, great. Because usually when we start a new series, we're in them for like a long time. So this is one that's going to be the same. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad you're here. And, and I'm excited to share with you what God's been sharing with me. And I think we're all going to um, learn a lot, not only about the gospel message, but also about our culture today. The threat to the church, both in the first century and today. And we're going to talk about um, something that all of us are bombarded with that threatens our church and for many people their salvation. So it's an important series, I think. I've always been struck by somebody who knows they're dying and they write a letter to the people that will follow. It's almost like I've, I've spent my entire life and this is the most important thing I want you to know because I'm getting ready to leave. And because I'm getting ready to leave, I have to trust that you know this because I won't be here to tell it to you. I can tell you as a parent, uh, my desire is that my children somehow can take what I've learned and build on it. Dying words say a lot about life when you think about it. It's interesting. I had a whole list of quotes, uh, people's death statements. Um, hundreds of atheists who screamed that they saw Jesus and realized they were going to hell. And then hundreds of believers who see chariots. And I couldn't find one believer who on their deathbed denounced Christ, felt despair, or lost hope. It's incredible. Last words force us to stop and think about life. So imagine what someone's last letter could mean to those that are left behind. What if you knew you're going to pass away soon and you wanted to make sure that everybody knew what you wanted them to know? Imagine how carefully you choose your words. Imagine how carefully you'd go over every line, how you'd pray through everything you say, how you would go over it and over it and over it to make sure it's exactly right, how you would agonize over the impact that it has, how they would receive it, how you desperately wanted to make sure the people that you love the most get the message. Imagine the power of those words to those who are reading them. Now imagine if you were writing, and during that process, the words coming out are actually from God himself through you. Suppose you're not just any follower of Jesus. What if you were one of his 12 disciples? No, let's do What if you were one of the three that were in his inner circle? You saw everything that he did. You were there for everything. You were there when he walked on the water. In fact, one of them actually walked on the water. You were there when he raised the dead, when he calmed the sea, when he healed the sick, when he opened the eyes of the blind, when he told paralytic people to get up and they actually walked. You saw it all. And then you and the other two who were in the inner circle went up to the top of a mountain. And you saw Jesus literally in his glory, and you heard the very voice of God, God's voice. You were one of the three that watched Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, and you were there when he solemnly looked at you and said, don't tell anybody. You were in the inner part of the Garden of Gethsemane, because in his most desperate moment, Jesus wanted you there with him. Imagine if you were that person. Three men, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, they'd seen it all. And towards the end of their lives, Peter and John took pen to paper and left their final warnings, their final instructions to those who would be left behind. Something ominous had prompted them to want to write. Something that threatened their life work, that threatened the gospel message itself. It's as if all of eternity is on the line, and these men, knowing they're towards the end of their life, have got to write down the most important words for those who would follow. 
The Holy Spirit inspired both of them and a few others, like Jude, to write warnings to the current Christians and those who would follow. These words are to us. First, there's Peter. We know Peter. He's the one that walked on the water. He's the one that always like lets his mouth get ahead of where he's thinking. And the time is roughly 63 A.D. Jesus has been gone. He resurrected and ascended to heaven 30 years ago. Yet he hasn't returned yet. They thought he was coming right back. He hadn't come back. He's one of the 12 apostles and he realizes that they're starting to die off. There's nowhere near 12 of them anymore. Some were martyred, some died naturally. But it was becoming obvious to Peter that the eyewitnesses to Jesus, those who actually really walked with him, you could count on one hand. So under the guidance of God the Holy Spirit, they wrote their experiences in letters that we call books of the Bible. The first letter Peter wrote was to encourage those who in Rome who were being persecuted under Nero. The year 64 AD, Rome had burned. Nero had done it himself, but he blamed and persecuted Christians. First Peter is a letter written to those Christians saying it's worth the persecution, encouraging them to persevere. But the second book is the one we're going to be looking at, and it's Peter's last letter to those who would follow. 2 Peter 1.12, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. In other words, I think it's right while I'm still breathing to remind you of something that you're going to need to pull up at any time. What did Peter want them to recall after his departure? What was the most important thing? Well, the second letter of Peter is a desperate plea for the followers of Jesus to stand firm. Not against the persecution of Christians by Nero, but a greater threat. Spread of false teaching in the church. It's crazy when you think about it. Christians are being fed to lions, they're being killed, they're being destroyed. Peter's got one letter left to write. And what does he choose to write about? False teaching in the church. Why? Well, because if you've been sold a bill of goods, it's not worth dying for. If somebody can come in and falsify what Jesus himself taught, what the eyewitnesses knew was true, then you're not a believer after all, and the entire work and message of Jesus ends. Teaching and learning is important because it involves truth and error. What a student learns becomes ingrained in their heart and soul. You develop an attachment to it. If what you learned is false, it's very hard to give it up. That's why it's so critical as a church that you preach truth, particularly to new believers. Because it's much easier to learn something new than to unlearn something wrong. The Christian faith that Peter taught was not just some matter of philosophy. Peter knew he was talking about eternal life and death. Peter had to confront it. He had to say something that would break the falsehood, that would, not be, that would be mistaken for truth. That if people came in and taught the wrong thing. Though these false teachers had already caused trouble, Peter expected their doctrines and immoral lifestyle would not only impact the church now, but the church forever. And he was right. Peter wrote this letter from prison in Rome. He had been arrested. He was facing imminent death. Shortly after this letter was written, Peter was martyred. And according to very reliable tradition, he was crucified upside down because he didn't believe he was worthy to be crucified like Jesus. Second Peter is written for the purpose of exposing, thwarting, defeating the invasion of false teachers in the church. 
Peter intended to instruct Christians in how to defend themselves against false teaching and deceptive lies. This book is the most graphic and penetrating expose of false teachers in scriptures comparable only to Jude. Peter doesn't really identify exactly what the false teaching is, although we know that from church history. But in general, he says false teachers are going to come. They're going to teach false truth. They're going to deny Christ. They're going to twist the Scriptures. They're not going to make it totally crazy. They're just going to twist it a little bit. That's what Satan has done from the beginning. They will mock the second coming of Jesus, saying He hasn't come. He's not coming back. But Peter was just as concerned to show the immoral character of these teachers as he was to expose their teaching. In other words, when we go into 2 Peter, we're going to see that he says, look, you can look at somebody and likely know if they're teaching falsely by the way they live, by the way they talk, by the things they're doing. It's not just what they're saying. Their entire life is immoral. Then there's Jude. Jude was the brother of Jesus, which also makes him the brother of James, the brother of Jesus. Right, okay. He had concerns about false teachers in his church. His book is written about the same time that Peter wrote his. The book deals with similar situations, though their approaches are different. Peter says, look, difficulty's coming. He's in prison in Rome, and he says, look, false teachers are coming. And Jude writes down, and he says, no, no, they're here. I'm dealing with them right now. From his opening sentence, Jude assaults error, threatens judgment, and encourages holiness. He says the church must literally fight for the true faith because it's under attack. Jude warns against those who have falsely gained entry into the church and perverting the one true faith with false teaching. He tries to wake up the church members and say, look, you've got to know what's true because they're lying to you and you're letting them do it. Then there's John. John, he wrote five books in the Bible. John, Revelation, and then cleverly, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, in order. I know, crazy. John was the apostle who lived the longest of all. He was the last man standing. All the other apostles had died. He was the last eyewitness to Jesus Christ on the earth. He had enormous authority in the early church. Our primary focus in this series is going to be 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. His last letters, he thought, before he had to write Revelation. He wrote from Ephesus, which was the intellectual center of the world at that time, the place where new thoughts were brought, where everybody came to bring their new ideas. He relocated there about the time of the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and this letter is written in about A.D. 85. John's letters have desperation in them that Peter and Jude lack. Likely because the attack of Satan in the early church was more and more developed and it had 20 years to grow in the church and it was becoming more prominent. These false teachers were not only infiltrating the church, they were beginning to lead churches. And John is an older man, the one Jesus loved, the one whose head was laid on his chest at the, the Last Supper, looks back over his life and he says, look guys, there's no middle ground. Times are desperate and you better know where you stand. You're either a child of God or you're a son of Satan. You're either light or darkness. You either believe truth or you follow lies. You're either eternally saved or you're eternally damned. You either know Jesus and the truth or you're against Jesus and promoting lies. You need to know where you are. That is John's last message to the people. Jesus called John and his brother James. Not the James that wrote James, the son of thunder. That's the one he's talking to. And, and there's no doubt that John, though young, had a lot of boldness in him. And we see his boldness in these three letters. He was greatly advanced in age by the time he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He was ministering in the churches. He was a superstar, a rock star. He was the last apostle, the last person who could tell you what Jesus was like, who actually witnessed him. 
The church father Papias, who had direct contact with John, said he was a living and abiding voice. The last remaining apostle. His testimony, highly authoritative, unquestioned. Most eagerly sought him because he had first-hand experience. Paul wrote from the city of Ephesus 30 years before. If you remember, Paul stopped at the city of Ephesus... And here's what he said to this particular church, the one that John is now leading 50 years later and writing from. Here's what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, he says, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul says, look, I've been the pastor here for three years. I've told you over and over with tears in my eyes, be careful, false teachers are coming. Now, 50 years later, John, the disciple, the last one standing, is in the same city at the same church. And he says they're here. And they're the greatest threat to the mission of Jesus that has ever existed. They're teaching twisted things, just like Paul said they would. The false teaching that concerned Paul that would drive Peter to write about it coming, Jude to say it's here, and John to say it's growing, would continue to attack and infiltrate the church to this day. Fortunately, the books of the Bible were finally canonized in 320. We're going to talk about that a little later. They were deemed official and complete in order to get the heresies into the church to keep them from growing. It's only because the diligence of the church leaders in the first and second century who actively fought for truth that prevented false teaching from making people believe a different gospel than the one Jesus had taught. In other words, false teachers were coming into the church. They had their own ideas, their own expressions, their own way of seeing things that was directly contradicted by Jesus and by all the apostles and by the writing of the scriptures. And they would come into the church. It was only because the church fathers fought so hard that they kept the Christian message pure and essentially said, if you're going to spread those lies get out of the church of Jesus and go start a new religion. We're not allowing it here. Every false religion in our culture today exists because the church stuck to true doctrine and rejected it. Refused to let it grow. Refused to let false religions, new age movements, other heresies get an established foot inside the church of Jesus. I don't believe these things exist in the American church today. Instead of rejecting heresy, we're incorporating it. You see, that's the difference between the first century church and the American church. The first century church said, if you're bringing that crap in here, get out. Just last week, we saw the teaching the apostles warned about in the Methodist church. Split it right down the middle. The American Methodists, strongly misled by deceivers, have embraced homosexuality and same-sex marriages. The African Methodists refuse to surrender God's truth to such foolishness and refuse to let that heresy stay inside their church. Most lies and false teaching in the church are embraced and watered in the U.S., not because false teachers are so strong in the U.S. Do you know why it's so effective here and not somewhere else? It's not because the teaching's any different. It's because our knowledge of the truth here is so weak. That's the problem. The problem is our knowledge of the truth is weak. We don't know truth. And because we don't know truth, when somebody comes in and says, you know what? God loves homosexuality. Oh, really? I didn't? Oh, okay. 
And they don't know the truth. They don't know the first two chapters of Romans. They don't know what that damage does to the families. And so most lies and teachings in the American church are just embraced. You love Jesus. I love Jesus. You believe falsehood. That's okay. We all love Jesus. And then what happens is people come into the church. They're not following Jesus. They're following some false teacher. They learn something that's not true, and therefore their salvation is not true. And they spend their lives wondering why they're not growing in the Spirit, and the reason is they're following a false God. We've allowed the lies of Satan to be embraced by those who claim to follow Jesus for two reasons. We don't know the truth ourselves. And we're more concerned about being politically correct than we are biblically correct. We don't know the scriptures. Survey was done 10 years ago asking evangelical Christians, are you a follower of Jesus? Are you saved? Will you go to heaven? 100%. Yep. Is Jesus God? Only 15% said yes. Is the Bible the authoritative word of God without error given by God to man to live? And it is the source for all truth. Less than 30%. Did Jesus physically die on the cross and actually resurrect? Less than 40%. There are many, many people sitting in church who have heard a false gospel and have surrendered to it and missed the truth. While we've been arguing over worship style and entertainment and church buildings and church budgets and social media and how the church should market itself and slick worship productions and consumerism of the churches, Satan has been quietly creating his church of false believers. Following Satan, but the ultimate thing is these false believers have been deceived to think that they're actually following Jesus. During the Roman Empire in the third century, Christians felt so threatened by false teaching. Think about this. That they rioted in the streets with each other over how to interpret the nature of God. Now it's bad. You say, oh, they rioted with each other. At least they cared. At least they thought it was worth talking about. At least they went and said, no, this is what the Bible says. What you're teaching is false. At least they cared. We allow those kinds of teaching by slick, polished speakers who fill stadiums, fill our TV screens, have their own satellite radio station with their lies, and we stand by afraid to offend or call out liars in the name of Jesus. So these letters are warnings to those of us who are still listening to the truth of God. The remnant who will hold on to God's truth no matter what the world does, no matter who leaves, and no matter who's offended. We're closer to the return of Jesus than any other group of people who've ever taken a breath on earth. I know that, and I believe you know that, and guess what? Satan knows that. His attack right now on the church of Jesus Christ is stronger than it has ever been because the time is drawing near and we're in the end times. Before we go into the false teachings that threaten the church, I want us to understand the threat that they were concerned about. We are warned to be on guard for wolves in sheep's clothing. They come into the church from within. It's not an external threat to the church. It's not like the Romans are going to come in or the government's going to come in or some other country's going to come. That's not what they were concerned about. In fact, every time that's happened, God has used external pressure on the church to grow the church. The false teaching in the church today comes from people who look like they're following Jesus. They look like us. They dress like us. They walk like us, they serve like us, they tithe like us, they quote scripture like us. They lead Bible studies like us, they pray like us, and they say all the right things most of the time. Satan's subtle. I know right now in this room are people who do not follow Jesus, who've been sent here by Satan to come into our church with the intent of destroying it. They may not believe... Or they may believe that they're following Jesus in the process. 
Satan doesn't care if you know if you're deceived or not. All he cares about is that you believe you have a special understanding of God's truth. Most people, see, when most people think of false teachers, they think of false teaching from the pulpit. That happens a lot. But the greater threat, more often, false teaching from the pulpit starts with an internal voice within the church that influences the pastor. I saw this recently in two local churches, churches that have recently publicly embraced heresy. I went back and listened to these pastors preach from years ago and listened to the things they taught recently. It is clear that the pastors walked away from solid doctrine. It's not that they didn't know it. Somebody got to them. Somebody influenced them. Both churches, I happen to know, had influential people who over time wore down the senior pastor and changed the pastor's mind. And those people were people who had positions in the church of leadership and were influential financially within the church. And these were not small churches. So while false teaching eventually ends up in the sermons from the pulpit, most of the time the damage is done within the flock by what appears to be the flock. I spent more time as a pastor over the last 12 years trying to nip false teaching in the bud before it can mislead the flock. They look like sheep. They begin their attack in small groups, in Bible study, in prayer groups, and in casual conversations. They sound authoritative. They give out an air of confidence in their biblical basis for what they're believing. They have a new insight you've never seen before. They usually give you some hard-to-believe teachings that sound different from everything you've ever heard. Most of them have been deceived and truly believe they're promoting truth. They've engaged Jesus with their head, but their hearts are far from Him. They have knowledge, but not the Spirit. They usually dominate discussions. They're imperative that they're right. They're eager to argue the point, often trying to bait others into a debate. They seem upset if you don't challenge them, jump into the mix, and just point them back to Scripture. We've been warned not to engage with people when they come in with new philosophies or new interpretations of biblical doctrine. Titus 3.9. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. That's the truth. For they are unprofitable and worthless. For a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. 2 Timothy 2.23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In other words, when somebody comes to you with a crazy false teaching and you point them to Scripture, you're going to find out where they stand with Jesus. Because if the Holy Spirit's in them and they have been deceived and they, they misled, they just don't understand or they misinterpreted something, their desire will be to understand what the Scriptures say and surrender to it. If they're not of God, if they don't have the Holy Spirit in them, they're going to stand over the Scriptures and manipulate them to say what they want them to say. Usually they've taken Scripture and done some incredible mental gymnastics to come up with their false teaching. Paul tells Timothy they've been ensnared by the devil to do his work in the church. Think about that. When you gently and love redirect them to the truth of the scriptures, they become defensive and they attack you. Why do they do that? Because they're not humbled by God's truth, they're offended by it. Satan always attacks when God's word is given back to him. I almost never engage in ridiculous teachings. I just, in love, show them truth and let them wrestle with it. Once they're told the truth, it's up to them to decide how to surrender to it. But Satan always attacks those who use the Word of God to dispute his lies. I wish today that we just had to deal with false teaching in our church activities. I really wish it was that way. But more often the attack within the congregation comes through the internet. 
some crazy thought of Satan has gained traction. It's being spread to believers as a new understanding or a new revelation or something no one's ever seen before. The post drip of arrogance. Usually they have pictures that seem creepy. The whole website or post seems to be really loud, has cheesy graphics and has capital letters all over the place with highlights everywhere telling you how stupid your church leaders are, how dumb the church is, and how they have new knowledge that is so smart, so bright, I can't believe people didn't see this before. And with a small donation to offset their costs, You can copy it to Facebook. You can post it to your friends without having to read it or understand it. They've already written it for you. Just copy it and post. Don't think. Don't think about the Scriptures. Don't think about what you know. These sites always appeal to your pride. Everyone in your church is an idiot. They've been misled. They've been following lies. They didn't read the Scriptures the way they were supposed to. But I've got insight. I've got special knowledge. And I'm going to share it with you. And then you'll be in. You'll be in the know. You'll be one of us. They're trusting that you don't know Scripture. They use specific Scriptures out of context, and they make them appear to reveal this new teaching. They misuse Greek, Hebrew, and usually English to get certain Scriptures to say certain things while completely ignoring other Scriptures. Let me give you a bit of a clue. The Word of God has been studied, dissected, discussed, taught, and caught for over 2,000 years. That learning has been under the guidance of God the Holy Spirit. He's been the teacher for 2,000 years. And since God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, there's no new revelation. The truth may be new to you, but when you hear somebody claim to have a new revelation that no one has seen under the guidance of the Holy Spirit for 2,000 years, be very careful. They deceive millions who want to follow Jesus but have been too lazy to know the Scriptures for themselves. Since Remnant started four years ago, the elders and I have been guarding the flock and have run off at least a dozen people who are involved in false teaching and refuse to seek truth when confronted in love and gentleness. People entrapped by Satan never, ever want to search the Scriptures with an open mind to find truth. We're under constant attack. So it's a huge deal and a constant focus for all the pastors, elders, and leaders in Jesus' church. We see all kinds of false teaching. I always think of it as the root of a tree. The roots go down into pride, arrogance, and Satan. The trunk is a false teaching we're going to talk about in a minute called Gnosticism. And then the branches are the thousands of ways that false teaching gets expressed in the world. Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word meaning knowledge, secret knowledge. See, the Gnostics believed that the disciples, the apostles, had a very special knowledge that they only gave to certain people. And only those certain people get saved. They have acquired special mystical knowledge as the means for salvation. According to Gnostics, there's a great God who's good and perfect, but he's impersonable and you cannot know him. There was actually a lesser God who made the earth, according to them, a a cheap knockoff of true God who wanted to create a flawless universe, but he totally botched the job and everything got screwed up. And what they believe is everything in the earth, everything physical, everything you've ever seen that was created was a mistake by a God who basically made a mistake. But fortunately, there is a pure God who wants to fix things. Instead of the utopia, we ended up with a world full of pain and misery, spiritual blindness, everything that we see, every matter you've ever touched is corrupt and evil. But to the Gnostics, it's okay. Because there is a good God who wants to save us. Gnosticism is the most dangerous heresy that's ever been taught in the church, and it's been taught for 2,300 years. It's been influenced by philosophers like Plato. It's based on two false premises. First, there's a difference between spirit and matter. 
Everything that's made that is physical is ugly, evil. Everything that's spiritual is holy. Okay? As a result, they believe anything done in the body, anything you do, sin, whatever, can't affect your spiritual life. Okay? Because you're in a flesh body that's full of sin. Do whatever you want. It doesn't affect your spiritual life. Where that becomes even a bigger problem is Jesus couldn't possibly have been a human. Because Jesus is perfect and good. He's a spirit. He may have looked like a human, but they would say, no, no, he can't be. He, he can't be a human. He couldn't have come here and lived with us and been born of the Virgin Mary. You see, because a God who's pure can't be in a world that's not pure. Second, Gnostics believe they have an elevated knowledge, a higher truth that's been revealed only to them that is the basis of salvation. You know where this comes from, right? Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? What God says is a lie. You can be just like Him. You can be like God. You can have, what does He have? The knowledge that God has. Satan hadn't changed in thousands of years. He's still doing the same stupid thing. But Gnostics teach that salvation is through acquiring knowledge. They claim to follow Jesus. They claim to follow His teachings, but they contradict Him at every turn. Jesus says, you are saved by faith in Me. They would say, no, no. It's through knowledge, special knowledge that you don't have. Christians assert that there's one source of truth, and it's the Bible, the inspired Word of God, God's written revelation. The Gnostics say, no, no, there's all kinds of books out there. There's hundreds of books, Gnostic books, that are special knowledge. Thankfully, the early church fathers were unanimous in rejecting these crazy things. You can look at everything about a Gnostic, and they contradict the truth of Scripture. They don't believe Jesus was truly a human. They don't believe His body was real. They think it just looked real. They think He was a spirit who floated around, but every once in a while He would manifest Himself as a person, and He would look real. But He can't be real because real matter is bad, and this is a pure spiritual God. Therefore, he never really struggled as a human. He never really struggled with sin. He never really had to be perfect. He was already perfect. Sin couldn't tempt him because he was never human. The Gnostics say the Bible's not the truth. The special knowledge is the truth. It's so funny. I click this thinking the page is going to turn. Go figure. Um, as you understand Gnosticism, you begin to understand every movement we have in our world today. Gnosticism is the root of the New Age movement, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormon cult, the Oprah movement, Universalism, Dianetics in the Church of Scientology, Hare Krishna, Children of God, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Muslim Islam, just to say a few. The apostles saw it coming. At the end of their life, they said, it's coming. They're going to try to thwart the church. And if you don't hold to what's true, instead of having a whole bunch of fake religions, you're going to have one massive fake church of Jesus. You better know the truth. They saw it coming. They warned about it. We see Gnosticism in other parts that are less formal, like flat earth followers. Those espousing evolution, those denying the equality and essence of the Trinity, those promoting the new Jesus movement, the authority of the apocryphal books like the book of Enoch, and hundreds of others that pop up on social media all the time. They seem limitless because Satan doesn't care what you believe as long as you don't believe the truth. Just pick one. It's okay. Let me give you just one example from the early church. Valentinus was the best known Gnostic of the day. He wrote a gospel called the Gospel of Truth, which is now circulating as a lost gospel that was found. This book was vehemently rejected by early church fathers in the first, second, and third century as being total crap. 
But now it's being brought back as a long lost book that has new revelation. Just so you know, he says he got his special knowledge from, get this, Paul himself. That he was when Paul's inner circle. The problem is, Valentinus was born in AD 100 and died in AD 160. And by the time he was born, Paul had been dead for 40 years. Almost every doctrine that he taught was a direct contradiction to the doctrines of Paul in his letters. Here's what he says. The universe was created by error. It was a mistake of Sophia, also known as wisdom. The creator God, the evil God, is the God of the Old Testament and created the evil physical world. However, the good God, the God of the New Testament, wants to free people from the bodily prison by giving them special knowledge that only a few can have. Since Jesus was a good God, he could never have really been in the flesh because the flesh is evil. So he was a spirit that looked like a man but was never really human. Because we all know God could never stoop to actually be a human. And yet that's the incredible message of the entire gospel. Today there's a resurgence of these, quote, lost books. They were never lost. But all these books claim to have special knowledge. Just turn on A&E, the History Channel, and others, but guard your hearts. Because almost every TV show on right now is a Gnostic falsehood of Jesus Christ. The new Jesus. The new New Testament. When you see a TV show about Jesus, I promise you, just watch it long enough, you'll start to hear Gnosticism. Oh, this book was rejected, but we found it. We have special knowledge. So how should the church respond? What do we do with these lies and deceptions? It turns out that false books were being written as fanciful theories about Jesus for the first three or four hundred years of the early church. People were writing all kinds of things. So the early church leaders came together and said, look, we've got to figure out what's real and what's not. We've got to decide once and for all which books were inspired by God and which ones weren't. Didn't turn the page. What am I doing with this? Okay. I want you to look at a passage out of Jude that we're going to study later. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. In other words, fight for the truth. Fight for what your faith is in. That was once for all delivered to the saints, to the apostles. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. Look, the truth. Contend for the faith. Contend for the truth. It was delivered once in totality for everybody to the apostles. Contend for it. God revealed His complete truth to us once and for all to the saints, period. Full stop. That's it. Nothing else. No new revelation. Nothing different. Most questions about which books belong in the Bible come from the writings of Christ and forward, and the early church had specific criteria. Now here's the interesting thing. Those who lived during the time had no problem with books of the Bible being books of the Bible and other books not being. They recognized the heresy that was in the other books. We don't recognize it because we don't know the truth. But they got together and they said, okay, was this book written by somebody who was an eyewitness to Jesus Christ? Did the book pass the truth test? In other words, did it already agree with Scripture that has already been established as true? For instance... One of the greatest validations of the Old Testament as being God's Word is that in the New Testament, every book but two were used as authoritative teaching. It's 
So in other words, if you look at the Old Testament, Jesus and others in the New Testament all said, that's Scripture. That's God's Word. Okay? In addition to that, these books have accepted the test of time. And it dates back to the early century. So what happened was, God, just as He inspired men to write the books, inspired men to look at all the literature that was out there, and God revealed to these men, a council of people, which books were of God and which ones weren't. They didn't decide it. God revealed it to them. People who challenge that today say, oh, well, these books are just as good and they're not in the Bible. These have new information. You see, Jesus was actually a homosexual. You don't believe me? Turn on Amazon, Netflix. There's a whole series about it. Oh, no, he was married... Well, and actually David, you see, he had a homosexual relationship with Jonathan. It's, it, it wasn't really written that way, but, but we know because he loved him so much that that's what really was going on there. And they start taking the truth of the gospel of Jesus and they start bastardizing it. And they make it sound real. But here's the thing. The Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know about God. But it tells us everything we need to know about God. So by about A.D. 300, the scriptures were already established. The truth was revealed. And the focus on church leaders became, how do we protect this truth? What do we do? Well, it turns out that within the church, there were people who held their Bibles and still believed all this Gnostic stuff. And they would go around teaching other people, and they were in the church. And the church followers, the church leaders said, we got to do something. We have to establish for our members our faith statement. And what we'll do is every time one of our members gets baptized, they'll recite this and agree with it so that they know and we know that they believe in the truth of the gospel and not the Gnostic stuff that's been taught. So there was this statement of faith that was a baptismal statement of faith. Its sole purpose was to object to, reject Gnostic teaching. We know it as the Apostles' Creed. Let's run through it and I'll show you. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The Gnostics held that the universe is evil and that Holy God could not make something evil. He can't possibly be the creator. God is not the creator of the universe, not the good God. So the very first statement, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, was directly targeting those who believe God is not creator God. And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary... The Gnostics agreed that Orthodox Christians were wrong in thinking Jesus had actually become a human. They said he couldn't have become a human. You see, he's spirit. They held that Jesus did not have the spirit until he was baptized. It came down on him at baptism. It left before he was crucified. Because God's spirit could never be crucified. And the Spirit was in Jesus just long enough to have to be there. But the idea that the Savior of the world was born human to a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, that wasn't aligning with their teaching. You see, they would say that Jesus was never a man at all. He just appeared to be a man. Crucified under Pontius Pilate. There were many stories then, current, about gods who died and were resurrected. They were mostly myths. Jesus, on the other hand, died. And if you ask somebody about these other gods who died and resurrected, you ask them, when did that happen? They'd go, well, we don't know. It just happened back in the day. Crucified under Pontius Pilate. Jesus, this human, born of the Virgin Mary not some fictitious spirit, lived a human life and was crucified at a specific time in history by a specific person. Jesus died under the jurisdiction of Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea from 26 to 36 AD. 
or during the last 10 years of the reign of the Emperor Tiberius, was crucified, dead, and buried, and he descended into Hades. Now here the creed hammers home the point that he was really dead. It's not some illusion, like the Gnostics said. The Gnostics would say, well, he just appeared to die because he was a spirit. Took on human form, took on the human form of a dead person, never really died, never really paid for your sins, never really had to. You see, because forgiveness is not important. Confessing your sins is not important. Do what you think feels good because the body is separate from the spirit. You can do whatever you want. There's no need for forgiveness, so there's no need for Jesus to go to the cross. He was nailed to a post. He died. He had a real body, a corpse that was placed in a tomb. He was not merely unconscious. His spirit left his body and went to the realm of the dead. It was a common belief among Christians that he had taken the souls of those who died trusting the promises of Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, and Isaiah, and many others, Isaiah, and brought them out of the realm of death and hell to heavenly glory. The problem is we get lost in this. Did he go to hell or not during those three days? Did he go down? It says they went down there. Peter says he went down. Did we, the point isn't, did he go to Hades? That's not the point. The point is, he really died because he was really human. That's the point they're trying to make. Tuesday night we can talk about the Apostles' Creed in our group in much more detail. The third day he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Catholic Church. Okay? The Gnostics believe that the most important Christian doctrines were reserved only for a few. The term Catholic here is not the Catholic Church. It's not capitalized. Okay? Catholic is a Greek word that means universal. What the apostles meant by this was, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the universal church of Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because no church has special knowledge. Because Jesus died for everybody. I believe in the universal church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. You see, the Gnostics were teaching that you don't need repentance and conviction. You need to be enlightened. You need to think at a higher level. If you think at a higher level, you will see. The resurrection of the body. The chief goal of the Gnostics was to become free from the taint of matter and the shackles of the body and to return to the heavenly realm. They rejected any idea at all that Jesus resurrected because you see Jesus didn't really die. He was never really crucified. And the life everlasting, amen. Gnosticism is based on mystical, intuitive, subjective, inward, emotional approach to truth that's not true at all. You see it in every false religion in our world today. Sit there long enough and you'll hear it. Here's a new gospel presented by this man to the Mormon church. Here's a new gospel presented to Islam. Here's new information. You see Dianetics and Scientology, we figured out something totally new. It's going to blow your mind. You're just going to change. It's going to turn you around. We just need all your money. Oh, you see, the problem you have is you're struggling trying to surrender to the truth of the Word of God. He doesn't want you struggling. He loves you. He came to save everybody. Everybody's going to be saved. You don't have to do anything. You don't have... How could God reject people just because they rejected Him? You see, I have special knowledge. I've been bestowed with information that every church leader has found repulsive. And it's all very old. And here's the really sad part. We all know it. We saw it in the garden. The very first manipulation of Satan on man has not changed at all. God is keeping from you special knowledge. He doesn't want you to have it. Because if you have it, you'll be enlightened like he is. And I know you want to be like God. 
Why are you spending your life struggling so hard to surrender to a God when you could be your own God if you just open up yourself to your new knowledge? What you need is self-awareness. What you need is to meditate and find yourself. And we'll put it in some music so you'll get it. See, because when we play music, you don't think, I found the greatest and the greatest is in me. No, he's up on the throne. That's where the greatest is. He does the same thing today. We were warned that he prowls around like a lion looking for somebody to devour. Translated, he looks throughout the church for people that don't know the truth. It always amazes me. I'm just going to go on a tangent. It always amazes me that people will spend hours and hours reading this crap on the internet, studying these books that have been rejected by everybody who knows anything about Jesus, and they won't study the source of truth. Now here's something else to think about. When you look at false books, there are hundreds of them about Jesus. I find it interesting that you can't find false books about Muhammad, about Buddha, about other church leaders. Why? Because Satan doesn't care. As long as you believe something false, pick whatever you want. He doesn't care. All he cares about is that you don't believe the message of Jesus Christ. Satan always calls God and the Bible into question, and he catches those in his web who are either naive or scripturally uninformed, and some seeking personal revelation to make them feel unique and special and superior to other people. Paul said to the Thessalonians, test everything. Hold fast to what's good, abstain from every form of evil. Peter, Paul, Jude, John, all warned about false teachers with their last words. They're going to bring false doctrines, myths really, perhaps accompanied by amazing signs. Jesus himself said, many will come. False prophets who will do amazing things and maybe even, if possible, mislead the elect. We were told to fight these lies. And the church is laying down in the first round. Oh, believe whatever you want to believe. See, because I'm more worried about being politically correct than I am concerned about being biblically correct. Oh, that's what you believe? Oh, that's okay. As long as you're serving, tithing, come on in. We have to be on guard. That's what this series is going to be about. We're going to study 2 Peter, and then we're going to study Jude, and then we're going to study 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then we're probably going to head to James for a while. And we're going to look at what these men were so concerned about. Because I have a real fear for the church today. We are allowing all kinds of false heresies, false doctrines to come into the church, and we're stamping them with the approval of Jesus Christ. And He never gave us that authority. Okay? So, as we go into this series, my encouragement to you this week, see how many places you can find Gnosticism. It's like having a new car. Once you see it, it's everywhere. Every TV show, every religion, everything. It's all about special knowledge. It's all about Jesus couldn't have been God. There has to be another way. Look for it and you'll find it. Let's pray. God, as we begin this journey, I know for a fact that our church has been under attack. And I know that this is something that has been a struggle for churches throughout the years. Those who held on to the truth of your word literally were in a spiritual fight. Those who allowed whatever became missionaries of Satan, misleading people who now have been deceived to think that they are saved when they're not. God, I pray that our church will always hold on to the truth no matter what. I pray, God, as we go through this series that each of us would recommit ourselves to knowing the scriptures for ourselves. Nobody can study them for you. Nobody can abide with Jesus for you. The more time you spend with the original, the easier it is to see the fake. And God, our souls are in the balance. 
as are the souls of those we teach, those who come into this facility looking for truth, and those of us who want to follow Jesus and grow in the truth. God, please continue to guard us, continue to protect us. But most of all, don't let us stagnate. Don't let us become complacent. And don't let us fail to abide in you. We love you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.